ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome to ID the Future. I'm your host, Eric Anderson, and today I'm continuing our Why It Matters series with the second half of my conversation with Dr. Scott Minnick. Previously, Dr. Minnick shared his personal journey to intelligent design and why it matters to him to continue sharing the evidence for design in the world. As we talk, Dr. Minnick shares how he became involved in reviewing the results of the famous long-term evolutionary experiment of Richard Lenski, and how he and his colleagues conclusively demonstrated that the implications of this important experiment were not as the supporters of Darwinian evolution had claimed. We now join the conversation as I ask Dr. Minnick what advice he would give someone who is sitting on the fence about intelligent design. What advice would you give to someone who maybe is sitting on the fence about intelligent design or has heard about it and not sure what to make of this? Read. Read both sides, you know, go deep. I think, you know, there's there's always a, a challenge and you have to keep an open mind. I remember an instance in 2004, you know, somebody slipped a Nature article under my door. I came into work in the lab about 10 o'clock and there was this paper on the floor of my office. And it was from Lenski's lab, you know, where they had this program, Abita, to oh, yeah. show, how, show how information could be generated. Uh, <laughs> naturally and you know i read it i read it carefully and i thought okay you know maybe they've done it and but then you could you know then there are arguments against it that are good but i started following that work and following his long-term evolution experiments and when he when he got a mutant that was growing on citrate i thought no way you know i mean I'm, i wasn't questioning that he got it but it wasn't right, right. you know it wasn't some contingent mutation dependent upon all these neutral or mutations to begin with, you know, that couldn't be repeated. Mm-hmm. Trained by the person that discovered that E. coli could grow on citrate anaerobically. You know, there's Jacob's Stokes that came out of Van Neal's group in, in Stanford. And so I thought, okay, we'll, we'll repeat that work and see if we can come up with a, a better argument. And I think we did. Did you think when Lenski had reported that he had, in fact, shown a legitimate significant gain of function, or were you kind of skeptical when you... No, no. I knew that E. coli could grow on citrate anaerobically. It was just that he somehow activated the transporter aerobically. In fact, I, I bet James Foster in the biology department that was part of Lenski's beacon group that when Lenski figures out what happened, you know, he's just got a promoter fusion with the anaerobic transporter you know what what was more subtle was he had to have two mutations he had to get the transporter activated that's easy to do gene duplications are the most common mutations that occur but there was a defect from the very beginning in the e coli b that he chose to use it can't grow on succinate so it had acquired a mutation probably in the origins of its application to molecular biology by Lurie and Delbrook back in the 40s. Um, they had a five-base pair deletion in a gene required for succinate utilization, and so they had to get a suppressor of that for it to grow. And it's a sense that citrate, the transporter, you transport in citrate, which is six carbons, but it's an anti-porter. You shunt out a four-carbon dicarboxylic acid, succinate or oxaloacetate, and to really efficiently grow on succinate, you've got to be able to capture those four carbons that you ship out when you break citrate. And, you know, E. coli B 
can't do that because of the mutation that it had had from the very beginning when his experiments, once his experiments started. We did our experiments in E. coli K12, which didn't have that defect. And we could repeat citrate utilizers very easily and show why you couldn't get them. So. Yeah, so I want, I want to dive into this just a little bit because this is a very interesting, you know, of course, the Lenski's experiment, the long-term evolutionary experiment has been touted as one of the great evidences for what evolution can do. And in fact, I would say Lenski's experiment is a really fascinating experiment. It's It's been, you know, hats off to them for doing this for so many years. Oh, and, I agree. You know, keep, I agree. Keep, keeping at it. But when, when this came out, that there was a strain that could metabolize citrate in the presence of oxygen, I think think there was a lot of press that hit about how this was a a new sort of gain of function. I don't know if they use that terminology, but a new feature, a new capability. And there was even a hint that maybe we're seeing an incipient species was, I think, the term that was used at one point. Right, right. Yeah, but back us up just a, minute, a little minute. So, so E. coli can metabolize citrate uh, generally. As a general matter, it has that capability, right? Oh, yeah. It makes citrate. It has a citric acid cycle, you know, which is essential yeah. for... And, and so why is it not normally doing that in the presence of oxygen? It can't transport citrate into the cell, all right? So if, if citrate were the only carbon source available, it wouldn't be able to use it because it just can't get it into the cell. It can make it in the cell. It can metabolize it inside the cell if it gets in, but that's the problem. You got to get it. You got to get it inside the cell. Okay, and so then take us through what happened in Lenski's experiment that you guys were able to later duplicate uh, more quickly. What what happened there? So he at thirty two thousand generations, you know, he he noticed a blip in one of the cultures in terms of its density of organisms present. Small satellite, mm-hmm. I think they might have missed it. They mentioned they might have missed it at first, but then at thirty, I think thirty three thousand generations you had a major increase in in cell numbers. And these are growing on a very low level of glucose. So citrate has always been used in, you know, traditional, what we call minimal defined media for E. coli as a chelator for iron and other metals. But E. coli couldn't grow on it. Okay, so, so for those of us who aren't aren't microbiologists, Scott, so in in the uh, the medium in which the cells are growing, there is citrate and glucose, right? Is that what's going on? Right, right, yeah. right. Okay. And that's by tradition. Yep. He had enough glucose present that they could go, you know, divide six or seven times and then stop. And so it's a very low level of glucose. Citrate was just probably in there, but for no reason other than that's the recipe for the medium. And then E. coli f- figured out how to, you know, as Lenski would say, access this lemony dessert. Mm-hmm. Okay. But anaerobically, E. coli does have a, a set of genes that are activated under anaerobic conditions to transport citrate into the cell. So anytime you have a gene in the, you know, in the chromosome that's under differential regulation, you can get overrides pretty easily. And that's essentially what happened. And it was... If you think of it, you have a single copy of the gene. Any gene is a little leaky, so you get a little bit of RNA transcribed, a little bit of protein made, you know, but it's pretty highly controlled. But if you duplicate that gene mm-hmm. and then duplicate it again and duplicate it again, so now you're increasing the number of copies, and these are pretty common mutations in bacteria, you're making your more and more leaky. And so if citrate's out there, it's going to be advantage for those few cells that are duplicated in that region, hmm. right? Now, if you shift 
you know, as he did every day, every 24 hours, you took that sample, that culture and put it back into glucose media. Well, now it's a, a fitness burden. You've got extra chromosomal, extra DNA, and that's a burden. So you're just going to recombine it out. Yeah. So it's a reversible mutation. You expand that region, you collapse it, expand it, collapse it. But on the rare occasion that happened at 33,000 or 30,000 generations, that recombination out happened to hook the, the transporter up to a gene promoter that's normally expressed aerobically, right? So now you've got, you've got your transporter being made all the time. And now it's just you got to recover the succinate that you're yeah. using. And so, so just, just again for sort of us lay folks to restate. So E. coli A has the ability to utilize citrate. B has the ability to ingest or transport citrate across the membrane, but that is normally turned off right. in the presence of oxygen, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Right. So you've got a switch that says, yeah, bring in citrate, but don't do it now. We're, we're, uh, turn, we're in the presence of oxygen. Don't do it. But if we're in an anaerobic situation, go ahead and turn on that transport. Right. Right. Okay. So, and then did the, did that switch get broken, so to speak, or was it just an extra copy that? It got, it got fused to another gene mm-hmm. during the recombinational reassortment process. So it's just like you hooked it up to a, a light switch that's on all the time instead of off when, when oxygen is present. Yeah. And so this is like, so- this is like me, you know, I've got this light bulb out on my porch, Scott, that, you know, it's got a switch that says don't turn on in sunshine. <laughs> right. So this is like me coming out one day in the middle of a bright sunny day and seeing that the light is on and saying, wow, it's developed a new feature. <laughs> it stays on in the presence of sunshine. But what happens is the switch isn't working properly. Right, right. Yeah, you broke the switch. That's a good analogy. Yeah, you broke the switch. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, so then you, you're looking at this and you're like, no, this isn't a new species. This isn't particularly surprising. We can do this faster, right? So how did you guys go about this experiment? Well, we did it in two ways. The first one was we just took E. coli K12 and threw it in citrate as a sole carbon source and just put it on the shaker, aerated cultures, and sure enough, in 20 days, you get a bloom and you analyze them, you sequence the genome, and it's the same class of mutation that Lenski found. Okay. And how many generations would that be in 20 days? Uh, we, it was anyway from anywhere from nine to a hundred. I and mean, we did this 40 odd times. So, Oh wow. Okay. So instead of 30,000 plus generations, this is a hundred or less. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. It's pretty easy to do. And what was interesting was, you know, this is a, it really addressed the fundamental question that Darwin had was, does the strength of selection cause the frequency and the type of mutation that you generate? And he thought it would, and Lenski even published that this was, you know, his hypothesis, that if you have a weak selection, organisms have time to figure out a solution around the, the problem that's going to be better than if you just put it like we did through the cells in a strong selective, either you're going to, you're going to figure this out or die. Right. And uh, E. coli came up with the same solution both times. Okay. So, it so it's matter. pretty pretty limited repertoire and it's it's partly because it's it's a solution i'm going to put that in air quotes even scott because we're we're breaking a regulator right right yeah yeah there's one solution to the problem yeah okay so you you guys that was one way you did it and what was the other approach the other approach was we repeated lenski's experiments the same way and we use the same media and 
the same volume, but instead of transferring every 24 hours, we figured that there were gene duplications going on and that to allow these to be captured, to get a promoter capture, we transferred every week. So we had glucose and citrate in the media. The organisms would grow in the glucose, and then we just gave time for those gene duplications and to occur, but we would transfer once a week instead of every day. And we got them after the second transfer, you know, second week, boom, there they were. So it just shows that you're dealing with a dynamic. It's a, it's a reversible type of mutation that is, is kind of subtle until you really sit down and look at what's going on genetically. Right. Okay. And it's taking advantage of capabilities the cell already had. It's not creating a new species or a new type of organism or anything like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. What was your, did you reach out to Linsky? I know you guys published some stuff. Did you have any response on, on your work? Yeah. He wrote something in his blog that the work was good, but he questioned the motives of, of us. <laughs> he questioned, questioned your motives. <laughs> yeah. Which was kind of bizarre. Um, <laughs> well, your motive is to figure out what's going on and, and, and understand this uh, system, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, That's and great. I think, if you strip away citrate, Lenski's experiments are great. You know, yeah. they've been going now for what, probably over 80,000 generations. That's approaching nearly 2 million years equivalent of human evolution. But the, the bottom line is overall, E. coli hasn't generated anything new. And these are 12 parallel cultures. They've jettisoned anywhere from 2 to 4% of their chromosomes. So they're getting rid of stuff they don't need. That speeds up the generation time. It gives cells an advantage. Six of the cultures develop mutations in the editing function, DNA polymerase. So they're making, you know, they have hyper mutational rates, which can give you an advantage in terms of you're mutating faster. And But in the long run, it's not an advantage because you're just going to acquire too many mutations. And that's a, the road to extinction. Yeah, heading towards disaster. Yeah. Right. So, well, and that's what I love about his experiment. I mean, it's, it's a, you know, one of the first real, I mean, there's been a lot with fruit flies, of course, but this is the first real long-term tens of thousands of generations to see what evolution can actually do. And it's pretty discouraging for the Darwinian story. Right. Except for the citrate and and Dawkins spent almost a whole chapter, you know, lauding the, the citrate results in his book, Evolution, the Greatest Show on Earth. You know, this is the type of experiments that creationists would hate. You know, this is what Darwin predicted. And, and I think that's just disingenuous. That's, you know, I love the experiment, and I just disagreed in terms of the interpretation of, of citrate. Yeah, yeah. I was saying, there's one thing that, that, you know, when you talk about the authority of science, that mm -hmm. I've seen time and time again in my career, that, you know, when the authority – makes a decision that's not always necessarily correct. In 2003, I, I don't know if you know, I was contacted by the Defense Intelligence Agency asking if, you know, I had any graduate students that had military experience. And I said, no, and why? And who are you Who are you? and why are you asking? And mm -hmm. they were trying to get, you know, groups together to go into Iraq to look for biological weapons. And I, I ended up volunteering. And I thought for the right reason, because, you know, Colin Powell said they captured these mobile weapons laboratories and Saddam was brewing 
this stuff. He'd reactivated his biological weapons program. And so I got over there and, and they asked me to inspect these weapons trailers. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I, I was one of two civilians on our, in our group and our, our um, detachment commander was a Marine Colonel. And I said, well, you know, Colonel Bohanner, why are you, why do you want to send me out there to look at these things? I mean, you've already made the call. Colin Powell went before the UN. This is a smoking yeah. gun. He said, well, we just want a couple more eyes on them. And so why don't you go out and look at it? I was out there for 15 minutes on both these trailers. And, and I had no buy. I mean, I was biased to think that they were weapons trailers. I mean, they were fermenters. And because I knew some of the people that had been on the first call. And I started looking at these and saying, wait a minute, you know, this isn't a fermenter. There's no spargers. There's no system to aerate. There's no sample ports. There's no harvesting equipment. You know, this is nuts. And the back of these trailers had these, you know, racks for cylinders, gas cylinders. And I wrote up a, a report that night when I got back to my quarters and, and put it through the zipper net, the high security thing to the CIA. And, and just listed all the reasons why I didn't think these were fermenters. And all chaos broke loose. Bohannon was in my um, pounding on my door at 6 a.m. the next morning saying, swearing at me as only Marines can do. What have you done? You've got everybody wrapped around an axle. You know, I said, well, you asked me to go look at these trailers. I've done fermentation at this level. These aren't fermenters. But it turned out that, you know, the Brits had been saying that all along. We went out and figured out that they were hydrogen generators, you know, for weather balloons that Iraqi forward observer would use to measure wind drift. And what's even more ironic is that's what the Iraqis said they were in the first place. Mm -hmm. So here you had all the authorities, you know, academia, colleagues, PhDs that had inspected these things, the CIA, upper level intelligence analysts, and you have somebody from northern Idaho says, wait a minute, you know, that's not what these are. And then you figure out what their real purpose is. And so that's that's the point that I'd, I'd love to get across is that all the experts are saying, this is how life arose. This is how life diverged. Yeah, but there's another explanation, you know, mm-hmm. and we know it. We know it. But, boy, you take a lot of flack. Right. Yeah, the guy from northern Idaho says otherwise. <laughs> yeah. And he finally said, you have so screwed up this whole situation. I said, well, what are you going to do? Send me home? I'll go. <laughs> you can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> yeah. so, so how long were you over there? The whole thing was for training and then deployment was about six months. And that's outside of Baghdad or where were you at? Yeah, right outside of Baghdad. We were, we were um, right near the airport. The whole uh-huh. across from Camp Victory where they were holding Saddam, although we didn't know it. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, Scott, last of all, if you had to pick one aspect of the natural world that kind of calls out to you as evidence for design, what would that be? I think it's DNA. You know, as Crick said, it's a frozen accident. It's the same code in E. coli and the tulips in your garden and, you know, your own cells. You know, it's not evolving. How did we get there in the first place? And how did we get the best code, you know, that can translate nucleic acid chemistry to protein chemistry? You know, it's a, it's a mind blower. And it functions on the same properties that we write code. You know, if you look at E. coli, I think Jim Shapiro in one of his papers wrote, E. coli can grow on milk sugar, lactose. 
How does it do that? It goes, if lactose is present and if glucose is absent, and if you have lax ZYA, then transcribe beta-galactosidase and permease. Mm-hmm. That's just a simple logic statement. If, 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 then. And, and that's how we write code. And E. coli is doing it. The simplest organisms are, are following that same logic. That's beautiful. Generated by the blind forces, you know, of nature. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Well, hey, Scott, thanks so much for being with us today to share a little bit about your story and why the evidence for design matters to you as you keep pressing forward and following the evidence where it leads. I've I've enjoyed chatting with you today and hearing about your experiences. Okay, likewise. Thanks for for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of ID the Future. To hear more inspirational stories from those involved in putting forward the remarkable evidence for design in nature, join us again here at ID the Future or on our sister YouTube channel, Discovery Science. And as you listen to these important stories, please consider sharing a link with a friend. For ID the Future, I'm Eric Anderson. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by Center for Science and Culture.